0: In your blonde girls with beautiful blonde curls sweet Paris daughters in all of your quarters. If I've been happy then you too blame. Oh ladies please stay.
1: Hello and welcome to Season 4 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1929, and Jennifer Flieger joins us to discuss The Love Parade. Come visit ernstcast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say Hi. everyone we're here with Jennifer Fleeger hi we're here at the start of season 4 we're here to talk about Ernst Lubitsch's The Love Parade and you came recommended from actually a couple people as someone who might be able to speak to the musical side of things cuz i must admit this season is one of the most intimidating for me because i'm pretty confident in myself in terms of like appreciation of films understanding of you know visual languages and stuff but actual music theory, the intersection between music and film. I feel like there are large gaps in my knowledge that I'm hoping that, you know, a succession of guests will paper over. But first, Jennifer, tell us about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And why in God's name did you agree to some random Canadians Ernst Lubitsch podcast, a director who I like to always remind our audience has been dead for over 75 years and is not quite as famous as the Alfred Hitchcocks of the world?
0: Well, first of all, Devin, I agree to the podcast because there's nothing I like more than talking about movies with other people. So it's a real treat (laughs) to be here. I am Jennifer Flieger. I got my PhD at the University of Iowa under Rick Altman. And at that time, Rick Altman and Leighton Pierce and a bunch of other folks at the University of Iowa were really interested in sound studies and in film music in particular. And I began thinking about women's voices because I saw a movie by Deanna Durbin. I'm sure you know it. 100 Men and a Girl. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, how on earth is it possible that Deanna Durbin was this famous when her voice is this high pitched? And she's actually quite annoying. And so I began thinking about Deanna Durbin's voice and I came up with a idea that I called the mismatched woman, which is a woman whose voice and body don't tend to match. So I began thinking about the ways in which we have a lot of mismatched women in media history. Deanna Durbin in particular sounded like a grown woman, but she was a teenager. And so I was wondering, what is it that attracted Americans to that kind of mismatched voice and then to the operatic voice more generally? So I wrote my dissertation on opera and jazz during the conversion to sound in the Hollywood soundtrack and the value of those two musical styles for selling sound to a public who might not be sold on the idea that films with sound mattered because, of course, silent film had already been solidified as a style and an art form for some time by 1926, 1927. Then after I wrote this dissertation and I made these two books, I taught at the Catholic University of America for a while. And for about 10 years now, I've been at Ursinus College in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, where I teach a range of film studies courses. And I also teach over at the Bryn Mawr Film Institute. It's an independent theater with a general education program.
1: We almost have an embarrassment of riches of things to talk about because here we are. It's less than a year since Lubitsch's. It's a silent film in some ways, but it's also kind of a transitional film, Eternal Love. And then we have The Love Parade, where we have first, I mean, sound, moving pictures talk now. That's shocking. Lubitsch actually had a, at least one near miss with Talking Pictures. He almost directed The Jazz Singer. But here we are a year and change later with The Love Parade and it stars two figures who will become incredibly important throughout the season. They're in about half the movies this season probably more. Maurice Chevalier and Jeanette McDonald. I first encountered them actually in The Love Parade. I watched these largely in order and it took me a while to warm up to Maurice. <laughs> but now, I mean, warm up I did. The Merry Widow is maybe my favorite musical now. And Anya and I just love Jeanette. She's lovely. I'm going to stop myself from talking about her singing voice but even in my ignorance i love it so we're here in 1929 the film was released in late 1929 you know we're not at like the clusters of actors talking around potted plants stage of dramatic sound filmmaking we're missing every other word you've got to talk into the mic Well, I can't make love to a bush! We are at, I believe, a stage where everything in this film, with maybe some exceptions, was recorded live with, you know, multiple cameras sometimes. I'll throw it over to you. I'm curious as to if you have any background on the specific state of sound technology as expressed by the Love Parade. Where is the kind of meeting of technology and content at at that point?
0: 1929 is when a lot of things begin to change. People begin to use something approximating boom microphones. The kind of box that Ruben Mamoulian is credited anyway with developing to keep the camera quiet means that we can have a little bit more mobility with the cameras instead of those solid machines that really made it impossible to move the camera at all. This film doesn't have a huge amount of camera movement the way that, say, the film is often compared to the Mamoulian film Love Me Tonight does a couple of years later. Mm Mm-hmm. But there are some extremely interesting things, I think, that Lubitsch does with sound in this film. So, for example, at the very beginning of the film, after the song performance by our servant Jacques, there's a scene in which we first have dialogue, but it's from behind a closed door and it's in French, right? So already he's kind of tricking us into like, where is the sound going to be coming from? What language are they going to be speaking? Who are we listening to and where are they located? And then Chevalier and the woman he's having an affair with enter the room. And none of this French gets translated into any kind of subtitles or anything. And it kind of doesn't matter because all we need to know is they're arguing, they're having an amorous relation. And then he turns to the camera and he says something like, (laughs) She's telling me jealous." the first thing that's said to us is said to us, like right mm-hmm. to us. And this is part of Chevalier's charm and the difference that he has in this film from Jeanette McDonald, who doesn't speak directly to the camera. Chevalier has access to us to make these little remarks, you know, offhand. And that's something that he continues throughout his career on film. So this is one of the things that Lubitsch does interestingly with sound. And the other thing is he uses a lot of semi-sync sound to suggest crowd noises or street noises or the scene near the end when they go to the the opera, which is definitely not an opera, but they go to something that's supposed to be an opera (laughs) and the crowd is clapping. And you can see that they're clapping on film is much speedier than the sound of applause that we hear in the soundtrack at that point. Early in the film, there's a moment where Chevalier opens up the window and we hear for a minute sort of what approximates street noises, and then he closes it again. So Lubitsch uses sound to suggest a much bigger possibility of space than a lot of people were doing even up into 1929. So he's creative with his use of sound, even though there is more capability for shooting sound synchronously in a way that doesn't have to be so immobile.
1: I was kind of surprised yet again with the film. Lubitsch seems insistent on consistently reinventing what it is a musical scene is. So, you know, you have Maurice's first big musical number where it's passed off between him and then the servant and then a dog. A dog has a solo in this, which is lovely. You have a later musical number where we are only privy to Jeanette singing via her servants listening through the window. So you have this play with sound perspective. He would later iterate on this. In Monte Carlo, there's a whole musical number played over the phone. And then it feels like Ruben Mamillion would just explode it all with Love Me Tonight, which just it feels like it's a string of gimmicks, but I love every gimmick. And so it almost feels like at the stage, the template for, OK, what are the audience's expectations for what to see in a musical number was less settled. And therefore Lubitsch had a lot of room to play.
0: I think that's totally true true. I mean, even the very first number in this film, Ooh La La, that opening mat shot with the two giant champagne bottles announces the sort of frontal absurdity of the rest of this movie. And then that little song seems almost truncated. You kind of want it to go on longer. So already we're suggesting, huh, what exactly is a song for this film? And then you're right. The second number, Paris Stay the Same, which Chevalier sings, and it gets passed along to Jacques and then to a dog, similarly has this way of frontal singing to us. He sings to the camera, even though Lubitsch cuts in groups of women who are like enjoying champagne all around listening to him sing, because of course, Chevalier is always womanizing. Yeah. Mm hmm. So he's singing this presumably to Paris and to the women, but he's actually singing it to us. And then when Jacques begins to sing, the song gets passed to him. What do we see as a reaction shot to that? But a bunch of maids opening the windows. So even though he's allowing the song to pass from Chevalier to his servant and then to a bunch of dogs, he's still classifying each of those groups along. Well, I hesitate to call dogs a social class, but along class lines, (laughs) Chevalier sings to rich women, the servant sings to maids and the dog sings to dogs. So there's a way in which the kind of musical singing that happens in this movie is always associated not just with gender, which of course it is, but then with class. And if you want to talk more about the second song that you mentioned, that's the reprise of Dream Lover. She's completely in love with Chevalier at that point. Maybe we should use his name in the film, Count Alfred. So Queen Louise is obsessed with Count Alfred. They've had their first encounter and she's lovesick. But that's such a strange reprise because we never see her sing. She sits at the piano. We cut to a shot of all of the servants outside listening and we hear her sing with them. But we don't cut back to her at the piano until she's listening to them sing. So it's as if, again, Lubitsch is singing adjusting the way that sound can permeate spaces and borders in such a creative way with that song.
1: The interplay between that and the technology is fascinating to me because in instances such as that, where the musical number kind of pops between different locations, multi-camera shooting was very popular at this time because of the technical limitations, right? Bordwell, in his book, Classical Hollywood Cinema, describes it as a way to kind of preserve the style of editing of silent films in the sound era. Instead of having, you know, multiple camera setups as you would in a silent film shot at temporarily different times, they're all shot at the same time, but with, you know multiple literal rigs, but obviously that means a limited camera placement. Lubitsch seems to have a very fascinating way of dealing with this when he has to, for example, have a number that passes between people. He would actually have a camera trained on even different sets, all hooked up to the same sound recorder. So, you know, you have Murray singing and that's actually shot in sequence with Jacques singing. And so Lubitsch would actually have, the dog is not Mike, unless that is the most amazingly well-trained dog that could bark on cue in tone. So you have Maurice and Jacques both, you know, on separate balconies on the same soundstage with different cameras trained on them so that you can pass off the song from one to the other. I don't know if they did this with the specific musical number later in the film where Jeanette is singing and we hear the servants, maybe. But it's a fascinating way to me of dealing with the synchronization issues.
0: I don't know if it's used later either. I kind of had thought it was, but you wouldn't need to because we never see her sing. So Mm -hmm. I'm not actually sure. I think I would just emphasize here how different this was from how, say, Warner Brothers was presenting opera around this same time. So, for example... Part of Warner Brothers' whole campaign to sell sound had to do with bringing operatic voices, particularly those singers who had been signed by the Met to the masses, right? To the Hamlets, as Will Hayes said in his address. So in order to convince people that these folks could really sing and that you could hear them singing in synchronized sound, they would be presented frontally, but usually with three different cameras at the same time. But the setups were so standard and so dull that what you're seeing is not anything interesting in terms of editing. But you're confirming that they're doing the singing themselves, that it is their voices coming out of these throats that we're seeing Mm. at the time. So they're standing on an opera stage, singing numbers, and it signifies to people as upper class, that this is an art form and that Warner Brothers can bring it to you. But over here at Paramount, what we're looking at is a kind of joke that we, the audience are in on. The flamboyance of that editing is also part of what makes it so funny, that he's singing to us, but he's not singing to us to confirm that Marie Chevalier is some completely fantastic, amazing singer, and that's what we're being brought. But rather, this is a narrative film in which the songs are advancing the story. And isn't that kind of exciting? Wink, wink. And so that's part of the pleasure of this moment is that the virtuosity in the editing of the song, which is not an opera this time, but an operetta, is used for very different reasons.
1: Yeah, I'm going to call back to the earlier episodes because it feels like what Chevalier is doing in his relationship to the camera, or more specifically, what Lubitsch is doing with Chevalier, is right in line with what he was doing with people like Ossias Walda and himself in Berlin, where in the first film of this whole series, Where's My Treasure? We, the viewer, are brought in on the comic extra diegetic antics of this figure by an In case of Where's My Treasure, Lubitsch spikes the camera and raises his eyebrows. Can you believe I'm doing this? Can you believe, you know, and Maurice just does it in a sound context. So there's this vein throughout Lubitsch's career of implicating us and kind of connecting us with these very cartoonish figures by that simple act.
0: I think he enjoys winking along with Chevalier in the film
1: absolutely and you opened up a vein of this that i'm very eager to bring up which is the different ways all these studios and kind of hollywood as a whole was approaching the musical we paired this viewing of the love parade last night with a far lesser 1929 musical by mgm called the hollywood review of 1929 which is the first ever appearance of the song singing in the rain which is interesting but that is a review style musical jack benny hosts jack benny is pretty funny and introduces act after act and we are basically taking the place of an imagined audience in a real theater while watching a variety show of sorts. And I would also say the camera placement is interesting and this kind of goes to what you brought up where the camera is almost never used with the exception of a couple of the two strip Technicolor numbers. It's never used in a way that feels expressive. It almost feels like shooting sports live where it's following the actors confirming that yes they are indeed singing. It's almost like emulating just our gaze as a static audience from the best seat in the house. And then Love Parade is an operetta style musical. We have at least by my count five operettas to deal with in this season, right? We have Love Parade, Monte Carlo, One Hour With You. I don't of if Love Me Tonight would count as an operetta-style musical. It feels like a Bugs Bunny style musical. <laughs> and then The Merry Widow, which is literally an adaptation of an extremely famous operetta. Lubitsch here is, as far as I know, kind of pioneering the film version of this specific type of operetta musical where the story is expressed through musical numbers as opposed to the musical numbers being diegetic things.
0: First of all, there's a very good reason why there were so many musical reviews at the end of the 1920s, and it's because those are oftentimes pre-written songs. And so there aren't a lot of composers and librettists already in Hollywood capable of writing this kind of form immediately upon the invention of sound. Reviews are easier to pull off in certain ways because they also resemble the kind of short films that were circulating quite widely during the time because of Warner Brothers mm-hmm. and other studios as well who would put these before feature films, right? So people were familiar with songs being sung to a camera and then putting them in a string and kind of review format made a lot of sense. The other thing that was happening in terms of the adaptation of music in the end of the 1920s was the use of folk songs, again, because those are already pre-written tunes. And then the operetta becomes the third of these sort of source material to be adapted into film. And there are a couple of reasons why the operetta, I think, is more attractive to audiences than the opera. The first you can probably imagine is that even though opera goes through a huge permutation of class associations in the 19th and into the 20th century. So, for example, in the mid-19th century, opera, as it was performed in the United States, wasn't necessarily only an upper class experience. When Jenny Lind toured America, for example, many, many people went to see her and her program wasn't necessarily the same in any one location. She would mix folk songs in with arias, for example. And sometimes when you would perform an opera, depending on where you would perform it, that other tunes would be inserted instead of the arias that were written for that opera. This starts to change as we move into the 20th century and opera becomes associated more with upper class experiences. So it's useful when you want to tell people that your sound technology can record great voices. Then opera (laughs) becomes a useful thing. If you want to produce an entire hour and a half feature. Film, opera is a form that is sung entirely from start to finish. So, this becomes kind of alienating for huge numbers of people who might be willing to listen to a single aria performed by somebody, say. Operettas have a great advantage here in that they have both songs and spoken dialogue. So, you can break that format of just listening to singing and have people talking, which is something we're all much more familiar with, being that we live in a world in which people don't sing everything that ever happens to them, right? <laughs> so, this is a more easy form for people to listen to. And the opera. Operetta, even in the 19th century, was a form that courted all social classes. So upper class people went to operettas, as did lower class people. It's a more familiar form. Operettas often end happily, so we don't have to kill off a character due to tuberculosis. So the form can leave people with a sense of bliss at the end of the film. They're usually shorter than operas, not always, but usually so. And so this kind of class mixing that was associated with operetta, the dialogue of the operetta. And although you have to have a pretty good vocal training to sing operetta just like you do opera. So if you think about Jeanette McDonald's performance in this film of Dream Lover, that's a giant leap she does up at one point, mm-hmm. right? You have to have a lot of skill to sing this way as well. But the songs are often treated a little bit more comedically. A lot of the songs in this movie are very funny. So that's often not true of opera, which tends to be much more serious. Although, of course, we have comic operas, Barbara of Seville or something like that. These are some of the differences. Operetta also has a nice little advantage here in that even if it had a lot of class mixing in terms of the form, because it has associations with Europe and specifically with France, it can bring into cinema this kind of vague fairy tale quality. That means you don't have to be super specific with your locations, but you can give an idea of aristocracy or royalty while making up a country like Slovenia. (laughs) People kind of know that even though there are American operettas and English operettas, of course, Gilbert and Sullivan, that. There's a vague European sensibility associated with operetta that's useful if you're telling this kind of story.
1: One distinction that I've heard made a few times, but I feel like I haven't wrapped my head around yet, is the difference between, you know, an operetta style musical such as the Love Parade and a more musical theater style of musical, such as you might see the later Freed Unit musicals. For example, you know, just to name my favorite Freed Unit film, like The Bandwagon, what differentiates that form, that structure from something like The Love Parade?
0: If we think about Rick Altman's division of musicals, I think it might be useful here. So he divides musicals into three types, the folk musical, the backstage musical and the fairy tale musical. So this is a fairy tale musical and that it's set in a kind of mystery location in a mystery time in which there are kings and queens and anything can happen as opposed to Bandwagon is really a backstage musical. It's a series of songs people are putting on a show while on the road. I love that when they sing I Love Louisa, more beer, for example. You're not going to have <laughs> <laughs> song quite like that in this film, although the champagne song at the beginning maybe does come kind of close. So really, that division has to do with the kinds of stories that are possible and the kinds of statements that they're making about society at the time. And this is why the fairy tale musical was the first one of these that Altman says came to maturity. And it's probably because of the need to rely on the idea of operetta to make musicals palpable to people, to make us understand what exactly we're putting on film. Mm. Weirdly enough, the same thing happened at the beginning of TV. There were a lot of live televised operettas on stations like NBC, for example, or CBS. And I think for the same kinds of reasons, people were worried about television and the possibility that TV wouldn't be upper class enough for people. So once again, we have operetta coming in to save the day. It's understandable, but it's also clearly artistic and requires virtuosic training.
1: I'm very curious about the way in which the Love Parade and Lubitsch's general take on musicals. I mean, The Merry Widow is a good example because that is quite a bit different tonally than you know, The Lehar. Even though both are lighthearted, The Merry Widow is, <laughs> the 34 Merry Widow is its own thing. What tonally and maybe structurally or even formally differentiates Lubitsch's sort of style of operetta from the stage operettas? And was Love Parade the first of these filmed operettas or does it have precedence? How groundbreaking was it?
0: There are a couple of musicals that appear before Love Parade that are quite similar, Desert Song and Rio Rita. So it's not the first, I wouldn't say. It's not a pre-existing operetta. Victor Schertzinger wrote this music for this film specifically. So although it relies on a lot of the tropes of the operetta, and it doesn't actually rely on all of them. So typically operettas will have some kind of mode of disguise in which the character will say, have to be a man for a little while or dress as a servant. We don't really have that here. And we don't really have the mistaken identity or misplaced parentage trope either in this film. So it uses the idea of an operetta style of singing with McDonald specifically. And a lot of the tropes, the kind of fairy tale royalty stuff, but it doesn't use everything. And I think you can kind of tell that. I think the other thing that makes it unique in terms of Lubitsch making an operetta is using Chevalier, because Chevalier is not Mm -hmm. the same kind of singer as Jeanette MacDonald, which I'm sure we all can notice, right? He talks, sings a lot of his songs. He makes everything with a little bit of a smirk in his voice and in his face. He trains as a singer in cafes and then in music halls and then in a bunch of musicals. He learns jazz and ragtime, too, in his past. So he has a range of styles, but his mode of performance is so drastically different than McDonald. And that's what makes the film work really well, I think, is mm-hmm. a contrast between the two of them. So often operettas have to do with a lower class person meeting a higher class person, for example, a romance that shouldn't occur. And here we don't necessarily have as much of that in the plot because he's a count, but we do have it in the way that they sing. The idea of her style of singing and his style of singing coming together is already a suggestion of massive differences, and it happens through the music.
1: I love showing these musicals to people. One reaction I often get is, "Why is Maurice in these? He can barely sing, and compared to Jeanette, he is not like this like technically soaring singer. I mean, in anything to please the Queen, which I love, his voice deliberately breaks whenever he tries to sing something high. He's like, oh, "And be bold, or cold, or hot." As you demand me. He has that crackling? What, you're reading, why contrast Maurice and not some, like, classically trained opera singer? What does his kind of specific, it feels like, low-class style of singing bring to this high-class milieu?
0: I think that what this contrast means is that the operetta is an egalitarian form and that we want to believe in this fairy tale of high and low coming together. That's kind of an American story. And so it makes sense that Chevalier would have this way of singing and that the songs in the film would be structured so as to bring at some points MacDonald to his level and him to her level. So I think anything to please the Queen happens after each of them has their solo numbers that are associated with their kind of singing. The Paris song that he sings with The Servant and the Dogs and The Dream Lover that she sings as a solo and then her own female servants come in. So we've established that they have two very different ways of performing. And then we have this Anything to Please the Queen where she also talks, sings for a while. Yeah. And then after that, we have the song that defines the film, The Love Parade Song, which involves at one point her singing, but she sings the phrase and then he answers in a talk voice with the name of the woman who's who has these eyes or who has the lips that she's singing about. Lisa. In
1: your name. The
0: sweet, And so we're suggesting that what a romance is, is a combination of high and low of two forces that can then work together in music. So then, of course, what does American music become? But something that can do the same thing, something that's accessible to everyone. And Schertzinger was an American. He's from Pennsylvania. So it's nice that he's asserting that through the songs that he writes within the songs and then the structure of the way the songs work in the musical itself.
1: I find interesting how their mutual singing styles, I mean, when it denotes class, right? I mean, in this film, you know, Maurice is a, he's a count, but he's a guard and she's a queen. And, you know, you have an immediate visceral feeling of the class differences. But I also find interesting how they interact with recording technology because neither of their voices are like a radio friendly type voice. I mean, you had the rise of crooning time of early microphones and, you know, Jeanette sings these incredibly high notes. And one common piece of criticism I hear about all of her early musicals is that you can't make out what she's saying. Clearly she's hitting nice notes, but you can't make it out. And for Maurice, it's less that he's understandable, but more that it almost feels like the microphones bring out his vocal shortcomings.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And he also has an extremely thick accent, which is used to an advantage in defining him as a character. But for some people, I think that does make him hard to understand as well. There were problems with representing sopranos in particular in early film sound technology. Problems that were so severe that led to Warner Brothers cutting a bunch of women singers from its catalog of, of opera shorts mm. that it would circulate among American towns because people complained about the voices of these women. So, for example, Marion Talley was a very young metropolitan opera singer who made a couple of opera shorts for Warner Brothers. And one of the critics said that her voice reminded him of the subway breaks when they would screech. <laughs> <laughs> these kinds of criticisms were also used for Jeanette MacDonald. And you can imagine that given that we hear this so frequently with sopranos at the end of the 1920s, this is really probably not her fault. And she really probably doesn't deserve the bad rep she has for the kind of singing that she did in these films.
1: It does feel like when I hear criticisms of Jeanette's singing, I'm really hearing criticisms of just limitations of sound technology at the time. Yes. You know, I might as well criticize like the times when people slap their clothing and you hear it reverberate on the wall or whatever.
0: And I think it's important to remember that sound Sound technologies are designed in accordance with our ideologies at that moment. Mm. So to say that women's voices are inadequate for sound recording technology is not to say that women are inadequate. It's to say that you've designed sound technologies that privilege a particular kind of voice and perhaps that didn't happen by accident.
1: It kind of there's echoes of the whole discourse around, you know, film stocks and historical film stocks and representation of skin tones, right? Color film stocks were largely designed around Caucasians and it's not that, you know, people with darker skin tones failed to perform on film stock, it's the film stock fails to depict them.
0: Absolutely. You're telling people what you expect to see and what you expect to hear by the technologies that you design to be used. That's a good comparison.
1: And so we have this early operetta and then throughout the next five years, Lubitsch is going to iterate on this. One little actually aside I have is that one of the operetta tropes that I see here that isn't present necessarily in the other musicals, maybe in little tiny ways, is the second couple.
0: Ah, yeah. The use of servants. We have the aristocracy and we have the servant class. And the servant class gets their own style of singing and a couple of numbers, which is actually super interesting, right? The two servants, Lupino Lane, who plays Jacques in the film, and Lillian Roth sing Let's Be Common together. And this is a good example also of how women's voices are often cast so that the woman who has a lower singing voice will usually be profiled in the opera or in an operetta as somebody who's not as high a class as the soprano. Yet in this case, what's interesting is that we can hear her voice a lot more clearly than we can Jeanette McDonald's because of the sound technology. And yet mm-hmm. she too kind of talk sings those songs, as does the Lane. And why this becomes interesting, I think, is because their songs really reflect the concerns of the aristocracy. So if Maurice and Jeanette are singing about having a love parade and being in love with one another, the servant song that immediately follows that is Let's Be Common, which is all about how they're gonna get married, but isn't it great because they can call each other names and throw things at each other, and so their lives are gonna be much easier than the aristocracy. Or later in the film when Jeanette and Maurice have a big fight. So the plot of the film goes that she's trying to sort of suppress his masculinity by not giving him any work because she's the queen and she's not going to recognize him as king. And this is the big kind of problem of the film post marriage. And then the servants have this big argument song. The queen is always right where they're shouting at each other, the women identifying with McDonald's character and the men with Mm -hmm. chevaliers. So the servant songs are always reflecting the songs of the upper classes and what they're really worried about. And in that way, it's, like the servants don't get their own identity, really, but they do seem to have a much better time. So there's a lot of acrobatics (laughs) that go on with their song, particularly Pino Lane's splits that he does repeatedly as Lillian Roth pushes down on his head and lifts him up. He's a fantastic
1: acrobat. You have the second couple and this element though is really noticeably dropped as soon as you get to Monte Carlo even as far as Lubitsch's musicals go and I don't think it comes back like one hour with you. I don't even really think I'd count it as an operetta because it's a remake of The Marriage Circle. It's not so much you have a second couple that reflects on the first. It's that you have confusion among four or five people, <laughs> you know, hence The Circle. And then you have Smiling Lieutenant, which again, no second couple. And finally, The Merry Widow, which again, no second couple. And why might that have been dropped? And what other elements in Love Parade do you see as kind of maybe being cast aside in the future musicals.
0: I think one of the great benefits that this movie gets from the second couple is the opportunity to introduce another musical style. And so if we're thinking about the film coming out at the time that we have a lot of review musicals, which show us all the possibilities of style that can happen in America and that film can make possible for people to see. With the Let's Be Common number, we have a much more jazzy style that exists in any of the rest of this film. There's a banjo in that song. There's a muted trumpet. There's a slide whistle for all of the antics that Lupino Lane is doing. And so there's a suggestion that cinema can bring you not just operetta as a pure form, but it can revise it into something else. And the second couple is what gives you that it can become much more comedic. You can have tap dancing in an operetta here, which they then do at one point in that number. And you can have jazz. So it's a way to introduce other musical styles that you don't really need anymore once the musical becomes its own
1: kind of form in cinema. I think that's a very good point. And I personally struggle with two elements of Love Parade. One is, I think, the last 45 minutes I have. uh, (laughs) They're a tough sit in some ways, um, coming from 95 years hence and with a bit of presentism.
0: Should we tell people what the plot of the last 45 minutes is?
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, essentially, I mean, the Love Parade is about a queen who falls in love with a count, one of her ambassadors, and they get married. And the second half of the film, the central conflict is essentially that he is now in the role of a traditional housewife and he doesn't deal with it well. I definitely have a lot of dramatic. Hangouts with the second half, mostly because I think the lovely, sexy, romantic comedy stuff is the film's best suit, maybe. And it's dropped a bit in favor of, you know, both characters not being their best selves (laughs) in a way that doesn't feel all that, to me, satisfying. But again, this is me, 95 years hence, not really treating the film as maybe it deserves. But William Paul actually, I think, really expresses this well, where in his book, Ernst Lubitsch's American Comedy, which is one of my favorite books on the subject of Ernst, he contrasts Lubitsch's musicals with his non-musical comedies, where his musicals and non-musical comedies both deal with characters kind of pushing against the strictures of society. And in the musicals, society tends to win out, you know, in this equilibrium is restored, meaning that Maurice has all the power. And, you know, in The Merry Widow, they get married at the end. It's a relatively conservative end to a wildly non-conservative musical. Contrast that with Designed for Living, The Threesome Continues, Trouble in Paradise, The Two Thieves Run Away, and No One's Feelings Are Really Hurt. There's a real gap there. And in this case, I think it's clearly engaging in a satire about gender roles and marital relations. But I think part of what makes this film kind of, you could say, problematic when looked through with modern eyes is the way that it, unlike virtually all of Lubitsch's other films that deal with this, this one almost seems to reaffirm traditional ideas of gender roles?
0: I like to think of the American musical as constantly operating on two levels. So the plots of Hollywood musicals tend to be very conservative. They end in heterosexual marriage. That's how they work, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, there are many, many moments in American film musicals, and Minnelli here too, that communicate to us something very different than this is a musical about heterosexual romance. And so I think you're right. In this film, the plot of the movie definitely affirms the idea that the man should be the head of the marriage. He should even be made king. He should be put in charge of all state affairs in spite of having no experience. Right? <laughs> he somehow could come up with a national budget without any training in mathematics. I don't really know how that happened. All of these parts of the film like that's what the plot of this movie does. <laughs> but within the individual numbers, there are a lot of really fascinating things that happen that sort of give us a wink and a nod to suggest that maybe Lubitsch doesn't necessarily agree. So mm-hmm. I know that might be a kind of hard sell. But for example, the song that McDonald sings with the entire military, right? (laughs) The March of the Grenadiers. She comes in with this high note and then all of the men of the nation are singing underneath her, you can imagine. So she's leading the military, essentially, with an operatic voice. That's extremely strange. And it produces itself as a number that we can all appreciate. And it's contrasted with the number that follows it, where Chevalier is essentially singing about his own impotence. Nobody's using it now, (laughs) right? Yeah. There is a suggestion narratively in all of that, that her assertion of control over the country comes at the expense of his own emasculation. But there's also a way in which we're kind of being asked to revel in that for a moment. The Nobody's Using It Now song is funny. He sings it to a dog, whereas Mm -hmm. the March of the Grenadiers is kind of flamboyant and glorious. She sings it with the military. And so if we just extract these two numbers musically, we have this interesting assertion of things that are possible in musical form that might not be possible in narrative form. And I think there's always a tension in musicals between these two things.
1: I also think it's worth pointing out the way that Lubitsch Always revels in jenny McDonald's character's sexual agency. Mm-hmm. I've recently rewatched all of these because you know you have to for the show. I was a little struck with Love Me Tonight. I mean, I love that film, but... Me too. In every single one of Jeanette McDonald's pre-code movies, she gets undressed at some point, you know, in lingerie of some sort, negligees and such, and usually her legs are foregrounded. And in the case of every single one of the Lubitsch musicals, her physical figure is treated as an expression of her own character's agency. In this, she shows her legs because she wants to make a point. In The Merry Widow, we see her getting dressed because she's reawakening. In Love Me Tonight, though, we see her unclothed in a point of view shot from the doctor's point of view. And it is not her displaying herself. It is the doctor essentially ogling her. And I found that an interesting contrast where even in this film, where again, I think I can't really defend the final note it ends. But getting there, it really begins this trend in Lubitsch of especially with regards to McDonald, really indulging her own character's agency and kind of meeting her own sexuality on her terms, which I find very rewarding. I
0: think. There's even a way in which the suggestion I'm making that the moments of the film work against the narrative of the film can do what you're saying. So you're right. The moment of innuendo where she points to one leg and then says there's only one like it and points to her other leg. It's definitely her taking control of the presentation of her legs. But even earlier in the film, when she gets into the bath, there's a close up Mm. on her legs as she steps into the bathtub. But this is a moment in the film in which she's upset about the fact that all of the public, all of the members of her country are so obsessed with the fact that she's not married and she's frustrated in this bath scene. And so the moment where she's taking agency over her own body is also a moment where she's frustrated with demands over the kinds of positions she can have in the society that she even rules, right? Like, I'm mad that everybody expects me to be married and I'm the queen, damn it. Look at me. It's almost like you can see her acquiescence to the kind of marriage that she has to have at the end of the film as a way of succumbing to society's demands at the time. I know I'm being too generous with the narrative of this movie. I'm just trying to save it somehow.
1: I always find myself caught between, I mean, I think almost everyone, you know, when you get past the really acceptable, what we call old art, but in this case, old cinema, and you get to the stuff where you have to actually work through stuff, when the default state, for most people, in my opinion, errs too far on the side of presentism and basically judging old cultures for not exactly resembling our current moral compass in every single way. And also, I think even more trouble defaulting to just reading everything on the surface level. There's plenty of, you know, Douglas Sirk films to take one very obvious example that really work hard to undercut 50s society in so many ways. And yet I've just never stopped reading the end of takes about how quaint those films are. And oh, wow, you know, this is pretty good despite it being of this society when it's like, no, it's using that society to critique it, right? So in a world where that impulse feels like it's overriding the impulse to be over generous, I like overgenerousness In certain circumstances, I did once overhear someone in a subway in Oakland, claim that birth of a nation is secretly subversive. And I you know, I think <laughs> I think this can be taken obviously to ludicrous extremes that are ridiculous. But I think it's worth looking at the love parade in context of all of Lubitch's other films, right? I mean, this is the man who made I Don't Wanna Be a Man and Design for a Living and Monte Carlo, you know, films that really actually like explode gender norms. I think it's worth thinking of, okay, maybe there's more here.
0: I think that's right. Because if you think about who has the power in this film, Maurice Chevalier has the ability to talk to us. So he clearly has control over the camera and the soundtrack in a certain way. But Jeanette MacDonald's singing style is the one associated with the form that we're watching with the operetta. And she is also queen at the beginning of the film. So there's different ways in which they hold power. And it's almost as if at the end, when they go to the opera... And what we're really seeing is some kind of ballet number with a more operetta style popular melody played behind it. This is the moment in the film where he is using the power of the public to say to her, I'm going to leave you unless you give me some authority here. Mm. And he's doing it to the soundtrack of her music, to operetta music in her realm, in the public. So he's using that possibility of speaking publicly, which he's done throughout the film. And by doing that, he suppresses her musical style. And in that moment, you can see this as a repression or a taking away of McDonald's power, but you can also see it as the way in which Operetta can't really accommodate Both of these things at the same time, and that you really only can hear operetta in sort of a piecemeal form, in which these moments of pleasure in these individual songs express different possibilities for gender and power.
1: Having seen one hour with you, I feel like this kind of mode of almost men and women in power relationships is revisited in a, I think, even more interesting way. Where Maurice Chevalier's character in that has an affair, of course, and that's the entire dramatic conflict of the film. The film is remarkable in that it's a musical where the only like dramatic incident that happens is an affair, and we deal with the follow of that. There's kind of an interesting way that film ends where Maurice has an affair and Jeanette finds out, of course, and gets her revenge, not by having her own affair, but by kind of extrapolating from a dream she had, like Eyes Wide Shut style, and using that as a way of kind of restoring the balance in her relationship. And so, you know, there's ways of reading that ending that seem a little bit like a double standard-ish, but it's not really about that, right? It's about her reclaiming her agency in the relationship, right? If you look at it from her character's point of view. This film's love parade does fall into a kind of tradition of. Lubitsch finding ways to kind of poke at these dynamics without necessarily thinking of how judicious is this first and foremost. And it's all a goof anyways. I mean, both these films end with, you know, the couples essentially all but spiking the camera and going, wasn't that fun? See you next time. It's all a lark.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, this film ends in an extremely conservative way, Mm -hmm. almost suggesting that you can't simultaneously be a woman leader and be a woman. Mm. We end with Chevalier and McDonald in the bedroom. We hear Love Parade again over the soundtrack, which is a song about women and how her body is represented by the similar bodies he's encountered of many other women. Right? (laughs) She's a conglomeration of women's parts. And then he kind of looks at the camera and closes the window and we know what happens after the fade out. Mm -hmm. So it's as if we can't have a public woman figure and a private woman at the same time. And so this is a deeply kind of conservative ending. And yet we've just seen a huge number of moments in this film in which she was very obviously a woman and a public leader. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, in charge of her own sexual agency. So it's as if the ending sort of denies the rest of what we've been seeing of McDonald the entire time, which is she knows she's beautiful. We've dressed her in kind of slinky gowns that show off her form and she's shown off her form and she's shown herself to be able to lead a military parade. And yet the ending of the film is okay, but now she's married. Ha ha. Hasn't this been a good time, as you put it?
1: It does feel like a film with conflicting impulses in that way, doesn't it? Because she's never shown to be an incompetent leader. In fact, the opposite. I mean, it seems so Penny's getting along fine. And there's never this moment where like she screws up the budget sheet before Maurice comes in to save it. It's just Maurice is like, here's my budget. I don't have any qualifications. So it almost feels like there was a first draft and it was rewritten or something. It's typical Hollywood studio stuff where you feel the multiple hands in it, perhaps.
0: I feel like I thought I missed something. I watched the movie twice over the weekend and never did I notice a moment where he would have some kind of skill to write this budget. And she wouldn't. It seemed like just a moment to appear in the film that shows, well, he's a man, so he has some capabilities. Yeah. And her refusal to accept the budget is about her desire to continue to be in charge, not that she has some alternate budget that she's been presenting. I think you're right. It does seem like there had been something edited out at some point. But maybe, I don't know if you want to see it this way, but the inclusion of that scene is almost, this isn't Serkian in any way. It's not actually an <laughs> undermining of women's roles in the 1920s, the way that that was of women's roles in the 1950s. But the refusal to make that a bigger plot point almost suggests that we see it as such an obvious ruse as a need to put something in the film to save masculinity. Yeah. But it's hard not to read it as that.
1: I mean, his character is such a child in the second half of the film. There's no real transition or even moment when she's awful to him. He just wakes up one morning and he's not happy with a lot in life. On my first viewing, I think I kind of had diagnosed my issues with the last half as being largely ideological. On this viewing, I think my diagnosis is that I've forgiven better films of worse things. So I think, you know, you know, perhaps it's a matter of the film's almost framework it's dramatic framework and its tone not necessarily supporting whatever it's trying to do with the satire and the characters really get lost where i mean i love both characters for the first 50 minutes they're lovely they're just two adults with chemistry and then it almost feels like the same characters are a poor fit for an actual dramatic conflict that has societal implications
0: yeah it's almost as if marriage is an actual impossibility without losing who you are as a woman. Maybe Mm -hmm. we could think of that as the critique. If you love Jeanette MacDonald in the first 50 minutes of this movie, and suddenly you see her suggestion that Chevalier sit around all day and wait for her to come back at night as a repression of his masculinity and of his character, then maybe it's marriage itself that makes that the only possibility for him, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't put it into the plot, in a way that makes sense to us as a character transition moment, then what can we do but see marriage itself
1: as a repressive social institution? And I mean, I think to kind of compare it to another film that deals with marriage, The Merry Widow, when that film gets, it never gets as actually serious as this film in a weird way. The Merry Widow kind of keeps things goofy successfully. But when an actual conflict does arise, it does feel rooted in the characters of Danilo and Sonia. The second half of that film is their mutual struggle to see each other as rounded people more than just the rake and more than just the one night stand. There's an arc there in a way that in this film, there's only one arc and it's Jeanette's from Women with Agency to how she's going to give up her agency to this man. And Maurice does not have to change at all. He's the exact same character at the end. He is the beginning. He hasn't learned a thing, which again, arcs are not the end all be all to be or not to be, does not have a single character arc in it, except for, you know, concentration camp Earhart, whose arc is from living to dying. And so you don't need arcs, but in this case, you know, we're invested enough in these characters that it feels Odd that only one arcs in a way that is so, as you said, conservative.
0: Yeah, and this is the depressing thing about that. At the beginning of this movie, I don't know what Chevalier's hobbies are, other than having affairs with women and collecting garters. That (laughs) feels like
1: his identity, right? That's his whole identity.
0: I'm gonna have affairs with women, collect garters, and drink champagne in Paris. That's what he enjoys Mm -hmm. doing. Whereas. McDonald's character really does seem to have quite a lot of skill. School children talk about her as queen. She seems to be a pretty good leader. She's respected. Mm-hmm. She can sing in a beautiful way. And you're right to suggest that if one of these people is going to change, it's sad that it's her. And that's why I'm kind of thinking that there is no way in this movie to suggest in 1929 that somebody of McDonald's skill and capability and artistry be married other than to give up all of those things. That's what marriage means. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to pretend like that's what Lubitsch had in mind but that's what we can see I think in the film if you want to be critical about what the film is perhaps
1: suggesting beyond the narrative itself. I mean to any audiences listening to this I really invite you to approach a film like this again if you haven't seen the film um, watch it, it's one of the most historically interesting films of this whole show. And it's not a chore like Madame DuBerry. It is a delight. But when confronted with a film that on the surface seems to kind of clash with your values as someone watching this film, what, 94 years hence, it can be very rewarding to instead go, okay, what is the context of this film? What are other works of art? What was society like in the context of which made it? And how can we not necessarily meet the film halfway, but how can we understand the film in that context? And is it interacting in a way that is very specific to that time period and maybe? is like trying to decipher something for us or is it actually you know a conservative text and then if it is a conservative text Going, okay, what can we actually take from this Especially in relation to the films around it And what conclusions can we draw about the people Who made it? The question of, you know, going From film to film and going, okay, this one's acceptable This one's not, yes, no That's the least rewarding way to view art, and part of why I love talking about films like The Love Parade is that It really forces me to examine the way I approach art, even if just for that I mean, if nothing else, the first hour of this film Is absolutely lovely, and it's a laugh ride It's as funny as Lubitch gets Even that aside, it's worthy of of serious understanding. It's worth taking seriously as its own work of art, even if your conclusion after having thought about it is, wow, that ending is rough. Take the long way around. It's worth it.
0: That makes a lot of sense because, of course, an ending is not all a film is. And it's possible to consider it in its parts. And I think you've done a really good job also of making it clear that it's a Lubitsch film. So we can't just ignore the rest of his work when thinking about what this one might mean, nor can we ignore the operetta as a form and thinking about what this one might mean. So if you're making a film operetta, there's certain conventions that you to to, adhere And one of those conventions is showing marriage and showing problems after marriage, as is often true of these fairy tale musicals. What happens in the second act of the marriage and how is that going to get resolved? And that it gets resolved in traditional conservative ways is perhaps rather predictable. But what does it mean more broadly? What are each of the characters giving up to make that conclusion possible? And how can we extrapolate that to what's possible for women in society in the time that the film was made? Not the fantasy time the film was set, but rather in 1929. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it here, Chevalier's character has to give up something too. So the front of this film is really, the film is entirely front loaded with jokes and innuendo and nodding and all these kinds of things. That's very typical of what Chevalier does, but also of operetta in that there's a lot of winking to the audience and an insider understanding that we're not really being very serious. At the end of the film, he's giving up the kind of innuendo that he's used to playing with in order to have that marriage work. So... Not that we should encourage people to collect garters in general, particularly men, but there is something that he's giving up to make the marriage happen. Sadly, she has to give up a whole lot more.
1: I do want to quickly mention, and this is something that I also just watched last night. It was a big night of 1929 cinema. My God, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm lucky I'm in between teaching terms, so I'm able to devote a lot of time to this show. I watched most of Paramount on Parade, which is Paramount's version of that review musical. A lot of vignettes instead of being kind of, you know, on a stage as in the Hollywood Review. But there is one scene where Maurice Chevalier and Evelyn Brent they play a married couple who have a fight, an aposh dance, where they slap each other. Basically, they disrobe each other in the midst of a fight that, you know, it to be, becomes a flirtation. And so we cut away, not to them fighting, we see them disrobe mostly. And then we cut to inserts of the ground where we see his collar on the ground, her garters on the ground, her dress on the ground, her negligee on the ground, you know, and then you cut back to them and they're both in their evening best, arm in arm, going out the door. I don't know which elements of Paramount and Parade Lubitsch directed, Individual scenes are not credited. If I was a betting man, I would bet money that Lubitsch directed this one because it is a fascinating example of his use of objects as dramatic agents in the place of live action actors. So I'll include that in the show notes as well.
0: Yeah, that's good. I mean, that happens here at the beginning when we cut to the garter behind his back. To indicate who he was having the affair with. Right. And then I don't know how you felt, Devin, about the use of the dog in this movie. I found this a little bit confusing. Dogs are not objects, of course, they're animals. But the way that he uses the dog to jump up into Jock's arms and then later for Chevalier to sing to the dog in the park, he says to the dog something like, you're the only one who looks up to me or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you feel about the dog? Why is the dog
1: here? I feel like the dog is almost a, it feels like a parody of the second couple. If the second couple is a reflection and a foil for the main couple, the dog and all the dog's mistresses are a reflection of the servant. You know, as you mentioned, you're climbing down the ladder of class. I think that's essentially the way you see the dog. And it's also just something for Lubitsch to cut to. It's a very funny looking dog. And it allows Lubitsch to cut away to a reaction shot that is just inherently cute and funny. So that's the entirety of my reading on the dog.
0: I don't have anything better to say about the dog, but since you're saying we're cutting down, down from class in the pass along song at the beginning of this. Doesn't it remind you of how Mamoulian takes that and just amps it up so much in the isn't it romantic bit? Yes. Which doesn't go through class in a linear way. I mean, we move from Chevalier as the tailor to the guy who comes to buy the suit to a taxi driver to a composer who has the funniest face I've ever seen when he's like coming up with lyrics for that song.
1: Oh, that composer. He's a perennial in these. He's in at least four or five of the movies this season. He's amazing. I always forget his name, but he's just the mustachio guy.
0: He's fantastic. Yeah. And then he's composing on a train and the entire military hears it and then they march with it. And then there's a Romani violinist who takes it back to camp and then finally to Jeanette McDonald in the palace. So we have to go through all of those steps, but it's not linear. And that's what makes that number. It's almost hard to grasp exactly how that works as a statement about class. But it certainly suggests that the song bridges class differences together. And Similarly here, we have the suggestion in Love Parade that songs can become viral ways of bringing communities yes. together with the reprise of Dream Lover when all of the servants are singing it and McDonald is alone in her room singing it as well. Like songs can spread and build community. And that's part of this musical too.
1: Yeah, it's songs as solidarity, which I love. This will be a recurring theme throughout the season, I'm sure. While we're on the subject of Luvich's typical tics and objects, maybe my favorite kind of example in this film, it is a shot of a person, but I think this person in this way is functioning as similar to an object. And we also have the door where you have this lovely cutaway from anything to please the queen to a very brief, a shot of the servant on a chair. He's made himself very comfortable keeping through the people in the door, right? He's looking through the keyhole. It's almost a haunting shot because it's not like framed for comedy. It's this wide shot that favors the door more than the person. The sound perspective changes. It functions as both a very funny cutaway because, you know, immediately you have this slightly creepy man spying on these two lovers. But it also feels like this vaguely ominous portent of things to come. It's this, oh, you know, they are not private anymore. They do not have their privacy. They are now public figures and their romance is the matter of public record no matter what they do there will be people judging them and spying on them in a way that at least in the case of count alfred maurice he is not used to
0: yes and this becomes at the turning point in the film when he realizes that he has to use the public nature of their romance to fix it That he's mm-hmm. not going to be able to convince the queen to come around to his point of view and respect him that he only can do that in full view of the entire community at the opera right There's another moment where we see objects being really important and that I don't know how well this really works. It works with the idea of the fairy tale, but with what the film is actually saying about marriage and romance, it doesn't work at all. The idea of luck and the broken mirror and the cross-eyed man and all these things that are supposed to bring bad luck to Chevalier's character in this marriage, which really have nothing to do with why the marriage doesn't work. But is that kind of close-ups on objects to suggest something bigger about the relationship of the kind of thing that you're talking about, too? There's a way in which we can see this film as a fairy tale with all of these hierarchies that we've been talking about. The upper class is watched by the servants, whether it's through a peephole or out the window, where our two main servants are watching what takes place in the bedroom between Chevalier and Macdonald near the beginning of the movie. And at the same time, how it's an undermining of hierarchy because of how the music works, because all of the music ought to be appreciated, whether it's associated with servants or with the upper class, because musical styles are associated with genders, but also come together within individual numbers, whether it's the talking style of singing of Chevalier and and the operatic style of McDonald. even as the narrative tells one story, the music actually kind of tells a different story about class and hierarchy that I think is kind of interesting.
1: Is there any way people can find your work or otherwise, you know, anything you've worked on or written?
0: I have written two books on my own and edited one with a couple of other people. So I wrote a book called Sounding American, Hollywood Opera and Jazz. That's about the conversion era and talks mostly about short films. And that's from Oxford University Press. I've written a book called Mismatched Women, The Siren Song Through the Machine, which details the ways in which women are associated with technology and how there's a particular kind of woman that stands out and is unable to be fully captured by technology at different moments in time. So one of these was Deanna Durbin, Susan Boyle. I connect to the internet. Trailby, the novel by George de Maurier. I connect to literature and the phonograph. That's also through Oxford University Press. And then I co-edited a volume called Media Ventriloquism, which has to do with the ways in which media technologies are always sort of stealing our voices and piecing them back together with other voices.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'll make sure to put links to all that in the show notes. I've been so lucky to have so many fantastic authors and academics who have donated their time to the show. So thank you so much for you know donating the past 90 minutes of your life to helping me understand and our audience understand what the heck is going on in early sound musicals.
0: <laughs> thank you, Devin. It's a great project. and I'm happy to be here.
1: Next week, Catherine Coldiron joins us to discuss Monte Carlo. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. Griffin Scheele was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples.